Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wechter, the technology editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And we have an absolutely jam-packed show this week because loads of things have happened this week. We have the resignation of the communication minister, Dennis Nocton. We have uh, David McCourt, who is the uh, essentially leading the bid for the National Bottle Plan, who looks like he might be in a little bit of controversy. Separately, I've spoken to Ushin Hanrahan, the Dublin entrepreneur raised 100 million euro for his business and he's just sold it to a Nasdaq listed firm and I was overlooking at Amazon's new Echo uh, smart speakers and lots of other gadgets but first we're going to look at the big story this week and I'm joined in studio by Laura Larkin who's the political correspondent for the Irish Independent and by Michael Cogley business correspondent for the Sunday Independent you're both very welcome to the show um, let me just. Oh, don't feel you have to say hello or anything. You know. <laughs> Hi, Adrian, um, how are you? <laughs> thanks for having uh, me. I, let's get right into it. What is going on here? Is the national broadband plan screwed politically? Uh, what is going on? Anyone? Um, well, you probably say that it's the culmination. You can probably say it's the culmination of uh, a long and arduous process that has gotten us. Okay, to this we're talking point. very politely here. G- give me, give it to me though. Give it to me on the nose. Are we? <sighs> okay. Um, I suppose the the plan that that we're currently looking at now is so vastly different to what was originally envisaged, and the fact that the amount of companies that have fallen out now, what's left. The way I always think of it is like a, a terrible soapbox car trundling along the, the road with like bits of wood hanging off and a yeah. wheel falling down. It's grinding. There's a finish line there Michael and grew it's up literally Wexford, going to slide way, over. It's <laughs> soapbox cars, but go on. But the, there's, it's basically going to slide over a finish line and that's what Do you think it will happen. slide over the finish line? I think it's now at a point where you have to weigh up the fact whether or not do we want to just get the broadband out of these people now yeah. or do you want it to get embroiled in another political mess? And mm-hmm. at this stage... You can't condemn, like a lot of people have written already, if we go back to the drawing board, you're condemning them to another five years. Surely mm. now it's at a point where just do it, just get it over and done with. Laura, politi- politically, yeah. we're beyond that point in in a, in the sense that, you know, the Taoiseach has asked for an independent review to ensure that the process hasn't been contaminated, as was claimed, you know, several times this week and all of the questions that arose over Dennis Nocton's interaction with the lead bidder. So... Really, I think it all kind of hangs on that, and hangs on this independent review. Yeah, I think. Or hangs so. on on so politically within Leinster House, or generally speaking, what is the view of? Because there's two competing things here, right? There's this whole exigency to try and get rural broadband out to five hundred and forty thousand homes and businesses versus 
um, the entirely proper requirement to have a squeaky clean procurement process that is completely above any doubt. Where are we pol politically, in terms of the political antennae, where are we in the balance between those? I mean, could, is, you know, are, is there enough, enough of a concern that there hasn't been letter of the law application to the procurement process to warrant something of a delay? I think nobody in Leinster House wants to see a delayed rollout of broadband. I mean, this has already been seen as, you know, a messy process that's mm. been delayed. And as you say, like, I think it's 1.1 million people. Like, that's a lot of mm. a lot of voters that don't have access to rural you, broadband. Can um, I just ask you, do you think that nobody wants to see national broadband plan delay? Because I, I do have my doubts about it. Like, in Leinster House, for example. Um, and tell me if I'm being too regional here, okay? I'm just going to throw this out. There seems to be a very different view from people who are based in cities and urban areas who live there. There seems to be a lot more willingness to consider a delay of this process than people who are living in rural areas who have no broadband. Is, is that a fair... Uh, am I being a little bit too cynical there? Possibly. I mean, I suppose you'd have to, you'd have to nearly forensically examine where everyone from, from each constituency kind of stands mm. and has stood on this. But certainly for anyone in a rural constituency, they know exactly what this means. And really nobody wants to be the, I suppose, the, the party in government or the party in charge when this process falls apart. Could be because I've a lot of the, um, the running on this, for example, there's one TD, uh, Catherine Murphy, uh, a very honourable uh, TD for Social, De Social Democrats. It is not my impression that the Social Democrats who are largely an urban-based party feel the absolute emergency or requirement to get rural broadband into, broadband into rural areas because it doesn't actually affect their voters as much as it does parties like Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil or, or even Sinn Féin. Um, is that... Uh, is, so what I'm really saying here is I'm wondering if they are as motivated to get rural broadband actually out because it, it does give them a very nice platform and a nice drum to beat if there is a problem or if there is a delay. Or, and that's why I'm asking, do you think I'm being a little bit cynical here? That, that I'm, I, I do have a suspicion about that. Well, maybe it is, maybe it, to this point it was easier for TDs like Catherine Murphy who, you know, because for, I suppose for anyone that has access and has had access to, to broadband, really the thoughts of, of you know, commu whole communities that don't have access to it, that's very hard to kind of grasp unless, you know, you are the person that's getting into the car to drive 40 minutes to mm. send your work emails uh, sitting in a car park somewhere with yeah. free Wi-Fi. That is a very difficult thing. But I think her, you know, her questions over the propriety of the mm. process so far, you know, came from a genuine place. And really, at this point now, those are questions that are going to have to be answered, whether, I suppose, yeah. TDs from, from rural constituencies like it or they don't. But there definitely is. And, I, you know, the Taoiseach said today that broadband was going to become like a personal crusade for him now. And, you know, we're hearing the a lot of noise. Yes, we're hearing a lot of noise from government that, you know, absolutely they won't drop the ball on this, that this is their, you know, their number one priority. They understand uh -huh. that it's a very significant like thing. It, it does. I, it does strike me that this is a bigger issue in rural areas than a lot of urban politicians might think. Now, just just to move this on a little bit, I, I rang up some of the main bidders, the previous bidders, Air and Syro, and I asked, kind of just on the QT, look, can I just get a sense from you what your 
intentions are here, would you consider, for example, taking legal action? And overwhelmingly, most of them said, no, they're, they're, they're just finished with this process. Now, that being the case, so right now, this is a very fast-moving process. So by the time this podcast goes out, maybe someone will have emerged from the woodwork to, to legally object to the entire national broadband plan process. But at the moment, it looks like nobody's going to, to legally challenge it. Therefore, the main objection to it will be political, right? Mm. I mean, so I guess the question I'm asking is, are we, about, we are literally weeks away from signing this contract, we need to make sure that everything is done correctly and according to the letter of the law. But is a potential delay to the contract going to be based on politics rather than legality? Probably, I'd imagine. Um, for the most part, I mean, you're looking at your, la your last bidder is is David McCourt, and that's kind of the way things are going to fall. So it, I think a delay might not necessarily be the worst thing in the world if it takes the box of ensuring that the process mm -hmm. was fine. The other thing is, I suppose, the scary thing is for the maybe the more rural TDs that are really dealing with the backfire from their from their constituents, is if that report finds out that actually something is wrong here. Like, I mean, mm. the, the meetings with McCourt, I think, dated back to July 17, and that's when it gets yeah. very hairy because there was other bidders in the pro in the process then. I mean, the meetings after that, I mean, once everyone else is gone, once Cyro's gone, once um, Air is gone, and even. Now, when Enet is for some reason gone as well, um, well, Enet's still part of the bid, it, but it, it's apparently it's not a leading partner. the bid. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a partner, and there's a new vehicle now driven entirely by McCourt. So, mm. it, it once all those people have gone out of the process, it's probably not as damaging as when maybe Nocton was meeting while Syro was in the process, or while Air was in the process, or something like that. Um, so, I, I suppose the delay will then probably let you right. The delay will most likely come from a political standpoint. Um, and provided that we get an actual review that isn't just a box ticking exercise that finds nothing at all and the parameters are too limited that it doesn't find anything, uh, I'd say McCourt would be happy to sit on his hands and wait uh, for the process to clear his name if he's entirely certain that there was no wrongdoing whatsoever in terms of the way they went about their business. Um, and I think that's probably somewhere in the middle where the thing will lie, where once we get the process cleared, the procurement process is fine, the bid is okay, we're going to go ahead and it might take another six months to clear this or whatever it might be, but at least it's done then and you get both parties covered for in the meantime. Yeah, I think that, well, I think that's a an optimistic view. Mm -hmm. um, I, from reporting on it myself, uh, the bidders have probably put too much money in it to just walk away if there's going to be another six-month delay. It's probably mm -hmm. cost them about 12 million so far. Once they actually do the deal and sign the contract, they then get into a, a, a period of financial closing. That'll cost another million or two yep. in, in lawyers. Um, then they have to <clears throat> properly do all the network design and the construction. And I don't think they would walk away, mm. you know, for the for the for for six months. If you're saying two years though, or eighteen months, there is a point, particularly when you look at the money that's that's backing this bid. So the money. I bumped into a man called David Scott, who is the son of a man called Walter Scott, who's a billionaire from Omaha, Nebraska, who's on Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway board. And they are partially bankrolling this, uh, this process. So what looks like happened was, it looks like that that family and David McCourt, who's an Irish American from Massachusetts, mm. sold their stake in Enet, maybe made about 30 million, or sorry, that was what they sold it for. And it looks like that they are reinvesting that back into the national bottom of it. However, that Omaha money, 
you know, I don't think that's going to wait for four years or five years, you know, for this pro if, if that's what this, uh, this process would take. No, it's not. But I think McCourt is in a very strong position now in being the final bidder that they're talking about a sliding scale of how much the state investment is going to be versus mm-hmm. the private investment, which obviously, I mean, the, the, the value of what they can get is there. And I think is it right in saying that the ownership of the ultimate network will go to the private to, entity as well? Yes, it at will. The end. So that's I mean, part of the, the concession agreement, yeah. Like, and I presume where, where McCourt is getting this money mm-hmm. from, from the Scott um, guy, I mean, I don't think he'll ever have trouble finding investment to back up that if Scott decides, you know what, five-year delay is too long, but as long as it's a guaranteed state government well, contract. Well, we, kn- we know that the UK utility energy giant, SSE, walked away from this process, and then SSE would be richer than all the other players yeah. combined. It has billions. Um, now, it probably did so for kind of procedural reasons. It, it might have been restructuring. There's a, a, an engineering firm, uh, John Lang as well, the UK-based mm-hmm. firm, that also walked away supposedly because there was restructuring uh, going on there as well. So people, entities do walk away from this process. Let's not forget that Air and Syro both backed yeah. out because they didn't like the idea of being tied down mm. uh, to this 25-year uh, process, which will be regulated. Yeah. That's um, worth pointing out that Air siphoned off quite a, a good portion of the process as well. They did. They did. That that uh, That is definitely there. Originally, as we were talking before the podcast, it was somewhere around 850,000. It's now 540,000. And that's because the government did a deal with AIR to allow AIR yeah. to take 300,000. But right now, if you're one of those 300,000 homes, you're glad they did that because you've got broadband or you, yeah. you will definitely have broadband by next June. Yeah. What about the others? What about the 540,000 homes? You I know? have to say, uh, there would be more than a few politicians in Leinster House that would be sweating listening to the two of you talking about the potential of a five-year delay. Well, if they, I mean, sweating is one thing, but be getting involved in the discussion and the debate uh, is another. Um, once again, we've got to reiterate, it is absolutely essential that everything here in the procurement process is above board. But there does come a point where you have to call it where yeah. you have to make a decision. And if we're looking at a scenario where for political reasons we decide to drag this out for six, eight, 12, 18 months, those politicians would be better off actually making their voices heard on this because their constituents are going to make uh, uh, their voices uh, heard. And then you know, confidence in the whole scheme will arguably uh, drain away. And let's, let's not forget... Like we've in the Irish Independent and me personally as a technology reporter, I've, you know, gone hard on this process quite frequently of, you know, uh, we've, we've asked very tough questions all along the way. But at the end of the day, this is actually, if it comes off, it's a terrific mm. uh, deal for people in rural Ireland. It means that they're going to get, you know, gigabit, 1000 megabit broadband, proper fo- fiber connections to their homes in excess of anything we get in Dublin and Cork for, you know, 35 quid a month, like mm. way better than this Mickey Mouse stuff that they get where they have to stick an aerial on their um, uh, on their roof and, and you know, get eight megabits per second. There's a data cap uh, 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 every month. Um, and there are a lot of winners if this thing falls. Like th- the wireless uh, providers are winners because there are a lot of, if you live in a rural area, often the only broadband you get is in the local town and there's a mast and you have to stick an antenna on your roof. And that costs 40 quid a month. You know, they're not going to shed any tears. Air won't shed any tears. Air will be a huge winner if this thing is, is delayed. Because they're crappy. Uh, well, it is crappy. It's not, it's not, I'm not taking any risks by saying it's crappy. It, objectively speaking, comparatively, yeah. it's a crappy network. It's, it's a weak, slow 
copper telephone line network that mm. isn't a fraction, doesn't have a fraction of the ability of a fiber network, of even a Virgin's cable network. Yeah. They're going to be a big winner. Cyro won't shed in tears. The joint venture between Vodafone and ESB. They're building out regional uh, broadband uh, all over the place. So who wins here? A hand, small handful of urban politicians and the big companies that have arguably uh, presided over an underinvested network for two decades, mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know. Yeah, I suppose just to just to come in on that point a little bit, um, it's interesting to hear you talk about kind of the, the rural options that are there. The, the the bid now currently lasts with McCourt and the people who've walked out that you've just explained, like Cyro and, and Air and stuff like yeah. that, they are all gone now. So really... So the, the bid has gone in now. The bid yeah. went in three weeks ago. So the proposition is now either go with them or don't because I don't think it's realistic to think that if we're going to pull back on this, mm. then you're talking five or six years. If we start the process again, it's If we start again from, from scratch, you're having to reapply for large... I don't know how much, but to the European Commission, yeah. you're talking about having to run an entire new tender. You're you're talking about it would be an absolute nightmare to do it, and it would probably cost the government more and the taxpayer more, yeah. because um, I little doubt that McCourt and all those guys they'd be thinking, why the hell would we go in exactly. for this again? Exactly. Um, the economics will have changed. So and anyway, it would be a disaster. It would, and it it kind of leaves and like you can imagine what that's like for for rural communities as well. Like I mean, if, if they came out with a new plan mm. and they said in five years time we're going to put up broadband, I imagine every rural voter would be like, I'd say you will, yeah, yeah, because already there's huge cynicism. Anytime we talk about this <laughs> or write about this or you see it on social media, not that those nutters should you know are necessarily, but yeah. Uh, well, actually, strike nutters from the uh, from the record there, but not that you believe all the feedback you get on social media. But there's so much cynicism already that this will never happen, and there was always just pie in the sky. And that's not really the case. I mean, it's not really the case. A lot of work has been done on yeah. this. As I said, we have driven the government very hard on, on this, rightfully so. But a lot of work has been done. As I said, we are weeks away from a deal actually being signed, of network design being done, of the yeah. The network actually being built. The only place in Western Europe, if not the world, where this is, is happening. Mm. So it's not true to say the whole thing was a scam from the beginning. It's just not true, no. you know? So no. then, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I don't think that that's fair, but I, I do think that really the, there are serious questions over how the government has perhaps sleepwalked into where we are right now, where there was a, you know, a government minister having unminited dinners with, with mm. the lead bidder, you know, and mm. I think that's, really what, it, what yeah. maybe will we'll hit hard with the, with the people that are affected by the fact that yeah. you know, we are that looking might at a potential delay. They're kind of saying, how, how did this happen? How yeah, is this allowed to happen? Yeah, it was just sloppy, basically. Yeah. Um, and just on Dennis Nocton, so I've dealt with him a bit, I've written about him, as I said, we've driven him very hard. I wonder, would you agree with me, Laura? I mean, the, the view here of Dennis Nocton in this process is not at all that, this would be my impression, that it's not at all that there is any stink of anything untoward or improper in his, in the way that he has has in his motivations or in, in anything he's done. Just that it, it strikes me almost as naivety, as was, naivety. Well, uh, just as you started, na naive is the word that yeah. I've heard, you know, used by several people over you know, the last few days. And, you know, that's like Dennis Nocton has said, and, you know, that any review is going to show that, that the process is fine and, and yeah. that he didn't interfere in any way that would put it at risk. 
and you know I, like that review it will come out and it will it will show what what it will show mm. but there is that sense that and you know it was it was really striking yesterday when he stood up and gave his resignation speech nobody was expecting it mm. and there was you know a very shocked reaction in the doll and then immediately we had you know all the opposition spokespeople standing up and saying oh well he's a great fella and I've known him for a very long time and we, we didn't call for him to resign mm. and that was you know the immediate kind of reaction to it but really I suppose you, you, he'll need to reflect now on is is naive a good enough excuse when mm. and that's a fair point if you are actually going to be naive and go into those dinners and you know it, it will emerge at some point then look, maybe being a cabinet minister is not the position for you. Maybe you are better off as an affable, popular local TD mm. who gets things done in a certain way, um, who deals with a lot of people and where person-to-person contact is very important. But maybe it's just, if, if that's the only way you can do business, then maybe a cabinet position isn't for you. There's kind of a, an element to it where you, the people deserve better from this. Mm. I mean, it's, a, it's a, at least a half a billion euro state-subsidized contract. Yeah, that's going. Be, yeah. And like this is like amateur stuff, mm. really, really amateur stuff. And you kind of ask, where's the oversight? Where's it not mm. even not just from his department, but if he's having these meetings, like why, why is it so hidden? Why is it not known mm. about? Why is it not discussed? Mm-hmm. Like, and why is there not better oversight from central government, from the department of Taoiseach, asking how the process is going? Who did you meet this week? Why did you meet McCourt? Oh mm. God, why did you meet McCourt? This is Ireland, you know. I, I know, but it's just not yeah. good enough. Yeah. Do you know? It's it's just not good enough. You can call it naivety, and then when you watch every other opposition politician get up and apologise mm. to his family and his kids and how sad it is and all this, it's, it's just not good enough. It doesn't of, matter if it's sad. It's slightly cringing, isn't it? Be like yeah. like could they call for something hammersome and then they'll say, oh, it was never personal, and I hope your family's okay. I mean, yeah. Come on, you yeah, know. it's a bit. Well, I think as well, I, I was kind of struck watching it yesterday and, you know, maybe it's sort of a reminder of their own mortality, like politics is a precarious business and you're watching somebody yeah. stand up and, mm. and end a ministerial career, yeah. you know, that and mm. Dennis Nocton is 21 years in Leinster House. He absolutely does have, you know, great working relationships with people across mm. the board and he, and he is well got. So while you he's, know maybe he, maybe watching from guy, yeah. from the outside yeah. it, it might have seemed all a little bit and it definitely was because there there may have been no direct calls for a resignation but there certainly you know it was very much a, a stopping short of and the opposition went extremely hard on him all week and mm-hmm. you know and then i think it all it all turned around again when when leo came into the dole and, and said actually there was you know there was four private dinners that we only found out about that was noticeable to me. I did that period between when he got up and made his resignation speech and there was quite a lot of sympathy. And, and I, I think a part of all of us was thinking, oh, hang on a second. Have we have we all pushed this too far and gotten rid of somebody who's just trying to do a job here and we've kind of made a sport out of it. But then Leo came in and said four dinners. And then you're thinking, well, he may have been trying to do his best. He may even have been doing a, a decent job, a reasonable job under the circumstances, but that's slightly different from what, uh, from his own speech you know, to the doll. Absolutely. I think, you know, as you say, in that period from, from when he stopped mm. talking and everybody kind of gathered their thoughts, there was, the, you know, there was a very mm. quick jump onto the bandwagon of he was maybe being thrown under the bus by Leo Radker by being forced mm. to go. And, you know, he said it himself, it was about optics. And not which, about which I that was and that was I was wondering immediately about that like why would Leo Thread throw him under the bus I mean like is it that was there some other personality thing between them but it doesn't really look now you will correct me if I'm wrong it doesn't really look like there was 
or was there? Was was there a, some anything else? Any other personal issue between them? Not that I would be aware of. And mm. Leo said in the doll yesterday, you know, he was in Young Finnegale with Dennis Nocton and he has mm. quite a good relationship with him and that he respects him. But I think maybe that 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 kind of feeds into the the opposition mm. narrative that Leo Varadkar is concerned with spin and mm. that that's how he leads his government. And also, you know, obviously we saw the budget talk very quickly descend into election talk and speculation that there is a, a faction in Fine Gael that want one. And, you know, would he use this as an excuse? But, I mean, to go to the country on rural broadband would be ill-advised, you would Ooh. imagine, from the outside looking I, in. I mean, I would have thought so. But, but again, I live in a, a, an area of Dublin that gets, you know, have a range of high-speed providers, so I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not personally motivated by it, but I can only imagine. Mm. Um, I've had the uh, the glorious experience of satellite broadband back in Wexford, many, many moons Satellite ago. broadband, yeah. yeah. Extremely expensive and very, very bad. Very expensive, <laughs> relatively slow, data caps, sometimes doesn't work properly if it rains. Mm. Um, however, to be fair to satellite broadband, if Everywhere. you have nothing else, yeah. I remember doing a story on a guy who... Uh, a ch Chinese guy who relocated to the Aran Islands. He was a stock trader and he had all of his screens and Bloomberg terminals and everything up and he was doing it off uh, a 100 quid a month satellite uh, broadband dish because you can work satellite broadband the same in the Aran Islands as you can anywhere else. Um, so one last point I do want to make and there is um, one of the reasons I believe and I think we would all um, agree that this is a big story that it has made front pages of newspapers is that we have uh, an issue, and Michal Martin, uh, the leader of Fianna Fáil, referred to this in the Doyle the other day before Dennis Nocton resigned, and he said uh, to the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, this is the sort of stuff that tribunals are made of. And what he was referring to was the controversial and checkered history that we have in Ireland of um, awarding telecoms licences and the sort of the elephant in the room here is I think we all feel that we have to be absolutely like whiter than white when it comes to the awarding, especially of a telecoms license, because essentially of the controversy that arose over the award of the second mobile telephone license in this country to ESAT Digifund. And we have had a tribunal about that. And I'm not going to go into depth uh, into that. But isn't that politically the reason that this is kind of a bigger deal than it might be? Possibly. I mean, you know, there definitely is the sense that, as you say, any process like this with, you know, public money at stake and, and quite a significant amount of public money, it does need to be whiter than white. And I think, you know, we were talking about Catherine Murphy and, and her questions and where they were coming from. And I do think that there you know, you can look at that in a cynical way or you can look at that in the context of there is form in Ireland generally and these things need to be considered. Everything should be out in the open. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we should have, I suppose, and, and politicians should have learned their lessons about procurement processes and how th how they need to be seen to be above board. They need to be above board, but also they need to be seen to be above board. So, yes, certainly I think that was the context where the context of these questions and, and how they emerged over the week. And, you know, there's, as you say, Michal Martin referred to it in the Dole. It, it was no great secret that this is where we were. And now it's just a matter of, I suppose, ensuring that that process is clean and, and hasn't been contaminated. Mm -hmm. Any last thoughts, Michael? 
uh, on the elephant in the room and the uh, go for it <laughs> and the and the uh, the makeup of the final bid. No, no, not particularly. I mean, the the final bid, um, the way it seems to be set up now, is going to be McCourt at the heart of it, and then these external partners who, depending on who you speak to may have been quite surprised to have been included in that press release at the time uh, and may not have anticipated to play as big a role as they're, as they're actually being implied to play. Um, so, no, not a whole lot. I suppose the process should have, has been tainted a little bit in terms of the meetings that have been, that have gone on, but that can be cleared and that I think a, a review process might be one of the best ways of doing something like that. Well, for our part, I mean, and I'm sure we, we would all agree here, I mean, we'll continue to push the process hard and ask, uh, you know, tough questions and try and find out. And if that leads to delays, then um, that is part of the process itself. However, it, you know, I do feel the tension and the concern of rural homes and businesses who are looking at this and who would probably want to think that there, if there is a delay or if there is a halt in the proceedings, it would want to be for a goddamn good reason and not just because someone thinks that they can make political capital out of it. Um, but you could say that about any process, yeah. I guess. So um, on that note, I'd like to thank Laura Larkin, the political correspondent of the Irish Independent, and Michael Cogley, the business correspondent for the Sunday Independent, for joining me on that topic today. Now, um, Earlier this week, I got to talk to Oshin Hanrahan, the Rathcool-based tech entrepreneur who raised almost 100 euro, 100 euro, 100 million euro for Handy.com, which became Handy Technologies, which essentially is um, a, a service, a gig economy platform where you can uh, hire um, home cleaning services and other services for your home. And he has just sold it to a Nasdaq company called Angie Home Services. And I got to catch up with him to talk to him about that. So, Oshin, congratulations on this deal. Would you, do you want to tell me a little bit uh, about it, how it came about, what it means and what it means for you personally? Sure. So we, we started Handy six years ago to change how people buy services. And we built out this platform out in New York that covers most of the U.S., Canada and parts of the U.K. where people can go and book home services at the touch of a button. So cleaners, handymen in a really simple, easy booking experience. Mm -hmm. And I think we've always thought about what's the best way to gain scale. And over the last couple of months, we've spent time with the folks at Angie Home Services, particularly Chris and Brandon, mm -hmm. uh, the CEO and chief product officer there. And we got to know them and we really felt that they'd understood how to build an experience at an even larger scale. So we decided uh, we decided when the conversation came about, about, uh, about an acquisition, we decided to take them up on it. and. Mm -hmm really just dug in and got to know the team, got to know what they were building and thought this is a great way for us to grow the business even faster. Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely committed to, you know, the next few years. Nobody changes here at the team. The The whole team stays in New York. We've got a bunch of open roles that we're trying to fill. So we got about 30 roles that we need to go out and recruit for. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about getting to scale even faster and uh, continuing to build the business inside Angie Home Services. Excellent. And and so so you're saying put, you're you're gonna be doing what you have been doing for the last couple of years. That's right. 
And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere for now. How's that? <laughs> and tell me, um, why have you uh, come to this point now? I mean, we've spoken a few times before, and you were always very focused on, you know, building the company up and building building it out. Now you're uh, now this is an acquisition. So um, wh- wh- why why at this point are, are you are you selling? Look, I, I think you reach uh, you reach these decision points gradually, and then suddenly, right, where you're going along and you've got your own path and you know, there are things that change around you, like you really, you know, want to go out and figure out what's the best way to scale the business even faster, whether it's across more customers, across more professionals, across more services. And then we've done a lot of work recently to build a great technology platform that really helps retailers. Mm-hmm. So right there, when you buy products that need installation or assembly, right at point of sale, Handy's built a great, uh, a great product experience, a great technology experience, mm-hmm. so that you can buy services right there at point of sale. And I think as part of that, we really wanted to, you know, do do integrations with as many large retailers as possible. And doing that with the strength of the Angie Home Services brand behind you uh, felt like a really natural fit. So you put mm-hmm. all that together, and you put together the fact that you've got a team in Chris and Brandon and others that really understand home services over the last 20 years they've built you know they've built a platform that truly has scaled and it just felt like a great opportunity to go and join another team mm-hmm. uh, and continue to scale out the business and it just felt like the time was right and and Angie is a, a publicly quoted company on the Nasdaq so at some point will they have to disclose how much they have paid for you I'm not sure on the mechanics of how exactly public companies work, so you'll you'll have to take that one. Well, to you're the, part uh, of one now. <laughs> yeah. you'll you'll have to take that one to the public company lawyers. I'm afraid. I'm sure I'm going to get all sorts of training on that stuff, Adrian. Right. Okay. Well, you you sound pretty well trained uh, trained uh, already. Um, for you personally, Oshin, I mean, we've spoken a few times uh, before. You've built up quite a substantial company you get a lot of attention and interest and coverage you you raised a lot of money you can be seen now as a national brand particularly uh, in uh, the US you you've built out across uh, a, a, you know a number of different cities what's what's your feeling now how how has the last few years been for you what what's your overriding feeling now about you know uh, what the last few years have meant Look, I, I think building companies is hard. It's hard to go out there and recruit a team, have an idea, get customers, uh, and it's hard to raise capital. It's hard to build great product. It's hard to meet customers' needs, meet customers' demands. And I think over the last few years, there have been you know highs, there have been low moments. I think what I take from it is just the greatest appreciation possible for folks who are going out there and whether it's small, one-person, two-person, five-person companies, all the way up to you know enormous companies, I've just got more respect than ever before for people who are out there starting and running small, medium, and large businesses, mm-hmm. um, because it's just it's just hard. And I think we do you know we do a great job of celebrating um, we do a great job of celebrating the successes that happen. Uh, I think there's just a lot of recognition that needs to go into how, how hard it is for a lot of folks that run small businesses every single day mm-hmm. and what that means. And over the next, you know, the next few years, I'm excited to keep working at Handy and keep building out the platform that we've built. But I, I guess the, the learnings that I take from it are just a respect and appreciation for how hard it is for lots of folks. And I know in, 
I know in Ireland and you know everywhere the, the we, we talk about how small medium enterprises are the backbone of the economy. I know that you know the rate of starting businesses in Ireland is incredibly high. Um, I think there's a lot of work that can be done to talk about how to make those folks as successful as possible. Hmm. And you're part of a wave, really, of companies that kind of started out about you know four, five, six years ago and that are now really coming to fruition now. I mean, we recently got our first unicorn uh, in Ireland, Bonafide Intercom. Well, we, we call them Irish, even though I think technically they're uh, headquartered in the in San Francisco, the Brains Trust is essentially here uh, in Dublin. Um, you know, you, you would have seen recently the announcement that Paddy Cosgrave's Web Summit did a, a really, really substantial deal with the Portuguese government. Um, that is really growing in scale. Your own company, Handy, from afar, we've watched it. It's a US-based company, obviously, but, you know, you, you could be regarded as one of a a generation or a crop of young entrepreneurs who are now kind of coming of age. Um, what's your perspective on, you know, um, on your peers and, and the next generation? Do you, do you think that this is you, you kind of you're part of the, the vanguard for a new generation who, who will do the same thing? Um, look, I obviously have a lot of respect for some of the folks you just mentioned. It was great to see Patty's deal get done with Lisbon and, you know, what it, I think it was a hundred million euro or so yeah. uh, deal. And the buyout number seemed crazy high at 3 billion, I think was the, the number that was yeah, quoted I'm, out I'm there. not a hundred percent sure. Of, I mean, I mean, it's, it is a great I, figure. I don't, you know. full, I don't fully understand how that <laughs> works either, but it seemed like a really big number. It sounds um, good. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, look. They built an incredible conference mm -hmm. with tens of thousands of folks going to it. I know you've been there. I've been yeah. there. We've, we've all spent time there. Um, I think it's great that that continues to be based out of Dublin um, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the core team. And it's great to it's great to see a business with so much international connectivity in terms of you know the volume of folks that are coming from all around the world mm -hmm. to these conferences with an Irish like base or anchor or root. So I think that's that's really strong. Look, I think there's a great crop of folks coming up. I mean, I'm fortunate to have invested recently in Advisable, which is another yeah. ex um, mm -hmm. ex Web Summit person. We had Peter, Peter on the, the podcast uh, last week. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. So you know all about it. Um, you got to mention. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. Um, but look, I, I think that there's there was that period in Ireland when um, you know 2008 2009 when unemployment was incredibly high, mm -hmm. and I think the businesses that were built then were are probably going to be a little different to the ones that are built now, where mm -hmm. unemployment is much lower, cost of labor is much higher, and it doesn't mean that you know the businesses then or now will be better, but I think they'll be different as a result. I think they'll be less around you know, making use of an abundant supply of labor and more around how do we focus on building great experiences or optimizing cost as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, making use of a lot of, of uh, a lot of incredibly talented, relatively available labor that existed back in 08, 09. I think it's a much more, I think it's a much more challenging environment mm -hmm. to build a business. I think it's a much easier environment to raise capital now, mm -hmm. but I think it's a much more challenging environment to build a business in now than it was in 08, 09. Okay. And Oshin, last, I presume that uh, given that you are staying at the helm or uh, close to the top or at the top of Handy, that you're going to be staying put in New York for a while. You, you're not coming back to, to Ireland for a while. Not yet. 
Not yet. Yes, I like that word, yes. <laughs> I mean, you've got to leave some hope, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much for, for, for coming on uh, the show, uh, Oshin, and congratulations on a great deal. Thanks, Adrian. Take care. And that was Oshin Hanrahan, co-founder and chief executive of Handy Technologies, talking to me about selling his company to Angie Home Services. Now, also this week, I got a extensive preview of a lot of Amazon's new uh, Echo products and gadgets, which are about to be launched on the Irish market. And I managed to speak to one of Amazon's uh, lead executives in Europe to ask him a couple of questions about privacy and other things. And we're here with Richard Souplet, who's the head of Alexa in Europe. Richard, there's quite a few new gadgets here, and one or two of them caught my eye. The Echo Input is pretty much a brand new device. Can you tell me basically what it does? Yeah, for sure. So this is really for customers that already have uh, an existing uh, speaker, like a, a, a Bose speaker, a Bluetooth speaker, and they can add the Echo input to actually give Alexa control over that speaker. So they can plug in the Echo input using a three and a half millimeter auxiliary cable or connect it through Bluetooth um, and then get all the things that they want to from Alexa, be able to listen to music, uh, do smart home, you know, anything that they're used to on Echo devices. So basically, I mean, Amazon, it has a, a full array of speakers uh, here, but it's still giving you a, just that extra uh, option if you if you already have a speaker yourself. Yeah, that's right. I think it's really about customer choice. So depending on what the customer wants, you know, if they were if they're looking for something with uh, a screen, we have the new Echo Show. If they're looking for something that's small that they can put kind of anywhere in their house, we have the the Echo Dot. And if they already have a speaker system that they that they love that they um, you know like to listen to at home already and just want to add Alexa to it, the the Echo input it's a, a great option for them. How is the Echo Show doing for Amazon? I mean, this week we have seen quite a few new screen devices from some of Amazon's rivals, including Google and Facebook. Facebook came out with a product that people are going to love or they're going to hate. It has a camera on it and it'll either do really well or it's going to absolutely bomb. But the idea behind the show, I think, is that you would have uh, that additional, you have another screen, maybe in your kitchen or so. How have, and that idea is very useful to some, slightly dystopian to others, but how, how has it worked for Amazon? Yeah, we've been, um, we've been really pleased with the customer response on it. So we introduced the show 16 months ago, and that was the first time Alexa could actually show visuals as well. So we saw customers not just um, talking to Alexa, but now they're seeing glanceable information from across the room. They get to see headlines of, of, of trending stories. Uh, it's great for doing video conferencing. I know in, in my household, my, my kids can now drop in on their grandparents and um, you know very quickly have a, a video call, tell them about how their, how their day has went. So it's created a whole bunch of of really new use cases that um, we're excited about. And then with the, the new show, it's um, we've upgraded it so it's a 10-inch screen, it has a better speaker, um, speaker setup, and then we've also integrated the smart home hub. So if you have a compatible uh, device like a light bulb, you can just say discover my lights and make it really easy for customers to uh, kind of control their, their, their home environment. But the, the response has been amazing. We hear from customers all the time about how they like to see information as well as you know, hear it from Echo. Just on that video, 
video concert thing, do you think we've become a little bit better or less self-conscious of, of for video calls and video con- conferencing? Because I would be of a generation that is still slightly self-conscious about you know using a video call. However, the 16-year-old in the house is not at all, is a pro, a total pro at it. I've seen some demo videos with families looking like they're straight off the Truman Show, you know, in terms of how, how easily they, they adapt to it. But um, one of the things that comes across from the Echo Show and, and rival products from other companies is that this idea of communication in a smart home is going to have a lot more screens in, in every room. Is, is that kind of what Amazon sees as well? You know, I think we see different uh, different setups for different people. Um, some people may want to just have um, connected speakers and echoes, and they can still use it to um, you know drop in on the top floor and say, "Hey, it's time! It's time for dinner." But a lot of customers will see value out of having a screen and just that extra visual information you get from you know not just you know talking to a, a relative, but getting to see them. Um, I think that's the way my mom in uh, in Philadelphia introduced me to her new her new puppy was uh, over over the Lex, uh, over the show. I said, "Hey, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna drop in," and she said, "Great, I have a surprise," and you got to show me the show me the puppy. Um, so I think it's it's it, it's up to customers how they want to use it. But we see a lot of customers that are really liking to use it for you know staying better connected uh, with the family as well as as well as doing more entertainment focused things too. One of the things that has struck me looking through the new products uh, that are on show here that were announced from the show through to the Echo Plus, through to the Fire Stick, the Fire HD tablets, and indeed the smart plug as well, is just how quickly and evolved the smart home setup has come within the last couple of years. It struck me when you were talking to me earlier uh, about the smart plug in particular that you can now essentially plug almost any device into that plug, into that socket. Um, Alexa will recognize it if you have an Echo or if you have an Alexa already set up in, in the home, will you know, uh, name it for you if, if you like. And then you can essentially uh, uh, tell that device to switch on or off or, or do other things. Um, how far down the road do you think we are? Because we always talk about smart homes. That's one of the things of the last 10 years. How far down the road do you think we are really to a smart home where you walk in the door and you start saying you know lights on lights off yeah i think we we have a we have a saying at amazon is always day one and i think this is you know particularly applies to smart home while smart home's been you know out there for many years it's been it's been relatively complex tough for um for customers to set up the environments that they want i think Alexa has been a huge step forward in smart home because we have a, you know, a single voice interface to work across a variety of different um, smart home devices, but you're really starting to see a takeoff now. It kind of started with plugs and with lights, um, but now we're doing things like supporting um, locks so you can check if your front door is locked. You'll be able to uh, connect up with your television to control you know, your, your entertainment experience. And then we just introduced a whole variety of new smart home primitives. Um, and these are you know, refined APIs that developers can take advantage of to you know, make their refrigerator smart home enabled or anything that you know, their blinds um, a smart home enabled. So I think it's very much the beginning. Um, people are enjoying being able to you know, easily turn it on off lights, um, control their environment, but I think it's just the beginning. We're gonna see a lot of great innovation 
can come out. And excited to have kind of Alexa at the forefront of making it really easy to control um, technology, which has you know, traditionally been pretty complex for the average customers to set up. And one question that always comes up when we talk about smart homes and smart devices in, in, in our houses is the, the issue, the matter of privacy and how much data <clears throat> we get to <clears throat> excuse me, withhold for ourselves and how much is collected and is, is processed. How does that work with the, because there's so many new Amazon smart devices now for our, our home. What's the basic modus operandi? Does Amazon collect a certain amount of information and does it use that then for its own you know market research or for or, or what's what's the, what's the basic story here yeah so i think you know you need to start with um you know it's privacy is super important to amazon all up and especially you know as you think about echo and alexa devices that are are, are in people's homes so with privacy, you need to think about it from you know from the ground up of how you design uh, these these devices and these uh, these smart home accessories. So with Echo, we have it um, you know built in uh, to the hardware. So we have a mute button, which uh, if if you press it, will electronically turn off uh, the microphones and in the case of the show, um, cameras as well. And um, it's always about um, adding in control for customers. So we tell them you know, when we are streaming to the cloud, the blue, the blue light ring will come on and say, hey, you know, we're, we're now talking, uh, talking with the cloud. And then you know, customers can always review everything that they've said to Alexa and decide you wanted to delete that one thing I've said or you know, delete the, in, the, uh, the entire history of what I've, um, what I've said. So for us, it's really about thinking about privacy from the beginning, building it in uh, all the way through the hardware and, and all the architecture, um, and then giving that control to customers to, to let them decide about you know what what data um, they want to they want to expose. And in terms of how the devices listen, do they wait for just the one trigger word or phrase, or or and is it limited to that, or are there any circumstances where they're picking up maybe more? words or more information in the background yeah so the way um, so the way it works is we have um, a keyword spotting on the device so the device itself it's it's locally processing listening just for its name so it's listening for the word Alexa or echo or Amazon whatever you set it to so it's looking for that um, that audio pattern and once it hears that, which is happening locally, then it starts connecting to the cloud. So nothing is going off of the device to the cloud until that wake word um, is triggered. And then that's when the blue light comes on, make it very clear to customers, you know, we're talking to the cloud now, and then the processing will happen from there. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally then, um, like I'm standing here surrounded by Amazon Echo and, and uh, products uh, um, and gadgets and speakers and screens. Some people would still be surprised that Amazon has become this advanced in hardware. Um, it's so relatively uh, relatively quickly with the Fire tablet, and we had obviously the Kindle was yeah. was the early leader here. Do you think that um, we're going to see the same kind of progression? Is is Amazon? Uh, in the hardware business now for good is is it uh, can we expect to see more and more smart devices in our home from the company 
Yeah, I think this, this goes back to um, uh, our culture, right? We're really focused on what customers want, right? And you can even, even going all the way back to the Kindle, they didn't just want uh, to buy an ebook, they wanted somewhat, some way that they could read it as well. So we invented, we invented the Kindle. And I think you'll see, you'll continue to see the same type of evolution as we, as we, um, as new categories arise. Um, with, with Echo, it was a, how do you make it easy for customers to just ask for anything, anywhere they are in a natural way. And that, you know, was the birth of the Alexa service and the Echo devices to bring them to customers' homes. So, so I think we will continue to stay customer focused and with that will come lots of uh, innovation, not just on the, surf, uh, the service side, but also on the hardware side. And that was Richard Souplay, head of Alexa in Europe. Now, I've just come from the giant Amazon showcase of its new products, and a couple of other things struck me which I thought I would talk about just while they're fresh in my mind. The first thing is that it's kind of amazing how much hardware Amazon is making, and what really struck me was the ecosystem that they're creating. For example, logically, how long is it until Amazon makes a TV. I I can see no reason why they wouldn't have the ambition or the wherewithal to do that. Um, Speaking of of television, Amazon Prime as a service, it has come on so much. Now, I remember uh, subscribing to Amazon Prime uh, TV video when it first came out in Ireland, and it was rubbish. It was absolute crap. It was a waste of money. It was a lot cheaper than Netflix, but there were something like 30 shows in total on it. The only reason you would have signed up would have been to watch um, the Jeremy Clarkson uh, show, Grand, whatever it's called, Grand Tour, or whatever it's called. Um, That has changed an awful lot. There is actually a huge amount uh, of content on there now. And Amazon has also activated, essentially it switched on Prime Delivery in Ireland a few months ago. And that is going to make a very, very big difference to uh, whether or not you subscribe to uh, something like Amazon Prime. But going back to the hardware, the ecosystem, this struck me particularly with a couple of products that Amazon are putting out now. One is a smart plug and the other is a new device called the Echo Input. To start with that, that's essentially a small disc. It costs around 45, 50 euro and you connect it to a speaker that you already have. And what that does is it lets you to control your speaker as if it were a smart Echo speaker Uh, because the the small little disc, the Echo input itself, um, actually uh, takes your voice commands and and, uh, when you set it up, uh, if you already have uh, an Echo or an Alexa system on your home Wi-Fi, uh, that will recognize, makes it really easy to set up. Um, and the other one is the smart plug, which essentially it's very much like uh, the Belkin Wemo plugs. You can plug anything into it, a light or a radio, whatever you like, and then you can control it using one of your other Echo devices. So let's say you have um, an Echo Plus speaker or an Echo Dot speaker, and uh, once you you set up your smart plug, it will sit on the same platform and network as your Amazon Echo. And all you have to do to activate or deactivate something that's connected to that plug, it can be anything, is to use your commands 
through your Amazon Echo device. You can't really do these things without having a credible ecosystem uh, set up. And, and But it looks like Amazon may have enough products now um, to actually do that. Essentially, what Amazon is doing is it's making it easy for you. Um, and right now, it looks like they have an edge over Google and Apple and Samsung in terms of setting up smart devices around your home because they're coming out with more products, number one. And number two, the integration into other products, into third-party products, they're still ahead of Google and Apple and Samsung. Google is catching up, make no mistake about it. And a lot of punters think that they will win in the, the long term. But right now, Amazon appears to be ahead. Now, that said, I was struck again, as I always am, with a few potential issues that Amazon has in its hardware ecosystem. And you know some of them were definitely to the fore today. There is still quite an irritating lag in time between the moment that you uh, bark your voice command at an Echo gadget or an Amazon Alexa-powered gadget and the time it actually will perform that function. Now, I'm talking maybe two seconds or sometimes three or four seconds, sometimes short, sometimes only a second, a second and a half. But if you're waiting three or four seconds uh, for something to to activate, that doesn't sound like a long time, but it actually is in this day and age. And it has two consequences. One, you feel like a bit of an idiot waiting to see if your command has registered with the ecosystem, with the device uh, or not. Um, and secondly, you are actually wondering whether it has worked. And that goes to the second issue. And that is, um, it, it, miss, it still misfires quite a lot. During the demos and during our own trials of the, the new products today, the new speakers and, uh, and, and devices, I'd say it misfired one out of every three or four times. By that, I mean it didn't pick up our voice or when it did pick up our voice, it didn't understand us, even when we were speaking in pretty ordinary, slow, normal voices. Um, That, I'm sure, will get better as time goes on. But for the moment, um, it is misfiring quite a bit. And that is a bit of a turnoff because what, what happens is, and I have found this with Echo devices in our own home, originally you think it's brilliant and it's amazing and you're going to switch over you know your use of you know your radio and maybe some functions like lights over to this system but then it starts misfiring a bit and you start to think this doesn't work all the time so you you really cut down your usage of it a lot now again i do think this will get better um and we probably are still at the early stages but it is an issue for amazon and it would be remiss of me um not to uh mention it it also does feel a bit clumsy sometimes, as well as the odd misfire, as well as the lag and, and it being slow. There are things you can do, like, for example, you can set up routines. So one of the demonstrations we had today was setting up a, a, a routine called a movie night when it will uh, dim the lights, it will control other uh, Alexa-connected processes and gadgets around the house, and then it will get your TV ready. But when you uh, trigger that routine command, Alexa comes back and says, oh boy, I love movie night. But she says it in such a robotic, lifeless way that 
it actually takes the um, the charm out of it entirely. Now I know it's not supposed to be charming. I know it's it's just functional. Um, and again, to me, that is a sign of an early stage technology. They it will become uh, more attractive over time. Um, I think you could also level the charge at Amazon hardware devices that the design still feels very basic, like the new Fire tablet, for example. Now it is very affordable, it's quite cheap, it's under 150 quid, so you get what you pay for. It does feel quite cheap though, and the screen on it, sometimes it takes one or two swipes to get it to do something. Um, it feels kind of chunky and blocky, um, and it is definitely not felt. This is not something that you would think was a on the designer's table in 2018. It looks like something from 2013 or 2014. And you could say the same about a couple of the other Amazon hardware devices. Now, I would make an exception for the Echo speakers. So the the new Echo uh, Plus speaker and particularly the new Echo Dot speaker are definitely a step up when it comes to design. And I have to special mention here for the Echo Dot. So for anyone who uh, hasn't seen an Echo Dot, that's the small... Uh, very very small speaker uh, it costs like 50 60 euro i think it costs and it was designed to go on your bedroom locker table uh, maybe as a uh, you know a radio uh, beside your bed but not something that could fill a room and i have one and i have one of the older ones and the sound of it is okay but it's essentially like you know using your phone playing something through your smartphone the new echo dot speaker much different same price much better sound now i mean much better sound um i was listening to it today in comparison to the original one and i i know the original one so i know that it was a a, a proper uh, uh, honest demonstration and huge difference so if you're looking for a small affordable um bluetooth speaker that also has quite a lot of uh, smart functionality under the hood that's a really good buy, the the, the Echo Dot. Um, the last thing I'm going to say um, is there still is an outstanding question over privacy. Now, as you will have heard, I asked Richard there a little bit about privacy, and I've spoken to Amazon executives before about this. And by and large, there's nothing to make us believe that Amazon is doing anything nefarious at all with our personal data. However, it's still not completely transparent completely transparent what they do with for example um, our you know storage of our voice commands in the cloud if you talk to a lot of artificial intelligence professionals professionals uh, analysts um, they're not entirely sure what Amazon does with it uh, either um, I've spoken to experts quite a bit um, about this and there is still a question over the extent to which Amazon might be leveraging personal data from these devices to down the line help them market things to you or to or even to uh, at some point um, you know, leverage them for ads. Once again, there's no reason to believe that Amazon is doing anything nefarious or that its instincts and motivations are any different to the likes of Facebook or Google. And you could argue that we are in an age where there is an expectation when something is very cheap or free that um, your personal data will be used 
to try and will be commercialized in some way to try and sell you stuff down the line and by and large most people actually are probably can probably live with that if it means uh, inexpensive uh, goods however i'm just saying that that point is still there overall though i have to say this is quite a step up for amazon um it comes in a week when they've had quite a lot of competition thrown at them from google in particular uh, but also facebook with its new facebook portal um, uh, device which is designed as a communications device a, a video communication device between mainly between homes kitchens uh, living rooms and that will definitely go head to head with um, the amazon show um, the echo show the show device um, overall there probably is no stopping Amazon right now. And as I said, I'm waiting for them to announce a television because there is no reason why they wouldn't uh, announce a TV, uh, especially in the way that they commoditize uh, and they don't mind commoditizing electronics. If it's good enough, if it has the decent specs close to the latest specs or the latest specifications, if they can add an extra level of artificial intelligence or smart ecosystem on top of that, then they do have a product they do have uh, something uh, compelling so anyway i hope you enjoyed listening to that that's all we have time for this week on the big tech show uh, as always if you like this podcast please do uh, share it or uh, like it on whatever podcast engine you're using but for me adrian weckler the tech editor of the irish and sunday independent bye bye for now